No, those, those two will keep around, huh? The Kleppels, they're, they're good people. I've watched uh, their generosity in action in many ways over the years. Uh, they use their house, they use their friendship, they use everything, a part, part of their life to welcome others, influence others uh, with the love of Jesus Christ. So very thankful for them. Uh, so we're in week five of telling our story, and I just kind of want to recap it in case you haven't been with us uh, for the first part of the series. The first part of this series, we talked about making a thick commitment. We were in Deuteronomy chapter four. We were looking at the story of God and acknowledging that the reason that we have a story in the story of God is because people along the way made thick commitments. They trusted God with their life. Uh, the next week, we looked at our wealth, and we juxtaposed the worst financial decision in history next to the best financial decision in history. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Worst financial decision, don't love your money. Best financial decision, love Jesus with your money. Then we got into the heart of this story. See, the story that we are telling is the gospel, and we have three audiences, especially on our heart, our community. We said of the community, love thrives in specificity. God didn't tell us to love everyone. God said, love your neighbor. You know why he said that? Turns out that's a little harder to do than to love people just in general. Uh, the same thing's true of our family. For some reason, God puts us in a local church. He wants us to be active in that church. He wants us to get to know the people in the church. He wants us to do life with these people. It turns out that that's what grows us as Christians as we do that together. Now, you take those two stories, our story to the community, our story to our family, and I will tell you this morning, I believe this will greatly influence the story to our future. You see, our future is looking for us to tell them a story. Now, as you think about the next generation, okay, get specific, I want you to think about Gen Z and Gen Alpha. Take out a piece of paper if you have your Our Story booklet, and I want you, as you think about the next generation, to write the first word that comes to your mind. Don't say it out loud. Keep it to yourself. Write down the first word that comes to your mind. Go ahead. Write it down. Think about it. Okay. I'm going to give you the first two words to come to my mind, and I know what you're thinking. Rob, you're cheating right now. You said you get one. Well, if I make up the rules, I get to break them. So my first word that comes to mind is the word brokenness. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the younger generation or the next generation is broken. That's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking that they have been handed brokenness. It turns out that anytime you go from one generation to the next, the prior generation hands the next generation brokenness. We see this in scripture. And as I think about this upcoming generation, 
there is just so much brokenness that's being presented to them. We have increased rates of anxiety and depression. Their, their outlook into the future just seems so despondent and gloomy. What do you do with that? I think about the book of Nehemiah. Have you read that one before? If not, I really encourage you to do so. You might remember that Nehemiah was called to go into Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. He comes into this capital city of Israel, reduced to rubble. The exiles who had made their way back to Jerusalem in that time, they just had given in to the rubble. We just got to live with it. So how does God use a leader like Nehemiah to bring significant change into this broken down community? Well, the first place that God sends Nehemiah is just to take a walk around that wall. Nehemiah examines it, and then he comes back to the exiles and he tells them the truth. He says to them, we, um, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. There's a principle in leadership that says the leader must define reality. Okay, let's talk about some reality when it comes to the next generation. I want you to see a couple of statistics. I'm not going to go off in statistics forever, but we've got to capture a, a the lay of the land this morning. So here's statistic number one. One in two young people will drift away from their faith practice. Think about graduation Sunday in a local church. Say you have four young people, four seniors going off to college, and you're just thinking such hopeful thoughts for them. They're going to go on and conquer the world and move forward in life. Well, two out of those four are going to walk away from their faith. And it's of that 50%, they say two-thirds of that 50% will do so between the ages of 18 and 23. I mean, they literally leave the church, and that's it. Now, another statistic is that the age group of 18 to 29 makes up 17% of the total population. They are less than... 10% of the church. That ought not to be. Here's one more fact. Uh, here in the Northeast where we live, there are going to be 25% of our churches that are going to go into transition, meaning the pastors are aging out of the pulpit. They're going to retire. And there is not a next generation of pastors waiting in the pipeline to take the leadership of the church. I was actually just in St. Louis at a chaplain's conference with Good News Global, formerly known as Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. The president of the organization said to me, Rob, over the next five years, every single year, we are going to be retiring between seven and eight chaplains. I said, okay, what percent of the chaplain core does that represent? And John says to me, 50. 50% transitioning. And we're asking the question, well, where are the next leaders going to come from? Okay, so that's reality. But here's what you don't want to do with reality. You don't want to get into the place where you just 
dwell on the brokenness and you get despaired by the brokenness. So I want to give you a second word. The second word is potential. When you look at the story of Nehemiah, what did he do? He defined reality, but then he also casted vision. He says to these exiles, listen, things are pretty bad, but let us build the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer derision. What is vision? Well, vision is a hopeful picture of a future that could be achieved if we are willing to make the painful changes today in order for that future to emerge. So in the case of Nehemiah's crew, guess what they had to do? They had to grab bricks and start building. And as I think about the next generation, I say to myself, losing them is an unacceptable outcome. I don't want that. I don't want that to be our story. I want to tell a better story. Well, what's a better story? Well, I believe the better story is a story of the church growing younger. Okay, well, how do you do that? Does that mean that we go out and we invent some kind of miracle cream that we can apply to ourselves and get younger? Nope, I don't think that's possible, at least not yet. Um, I also don't think that growing younger involves us wearing like the cool, latest, trendy clothes, putting smoke machines in the front and strobe lights to make the young people feel attracted to the church. Because let me let you in on a little secret. They think that is lame. Now, what I'm talking about is a series of intentional choices that we make to involve and retain the younger generation. Let me just refine a little more reality, though. We live in a specific context. Have you been, like, reading anything about Cape Cod lately and the demographics of Cape Cod? Um, I've had a couple of people over the years, the last two or three years, come up to me and like, Rob, you know, I'm really concerned. I'm looking out in the congregation, and I just want to see more young people around the church. And I'm thinking to myself, thank you for seeing that. Thank you for caring about that. That's a really important thing to care about. But here's the deal. You can't change certain things that you are presented with, certain challenges. Um, Barnstable County, where we live, is the fourth oldest county in the United States of America. The last... Um, census that they took. Uh, this is between 2011 and 2021. The 65 plus age group in Barnstable County increased by 40%. The 35 to 49 age group decreased by 20%. The average median age in our context is, get this, 53. You want to know what the average is in the United States? 39. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, let's just throw in the towel and not try to grow younger. No, <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, there's a principle that I've carried with me for years in ministry. It says this, that the church is only ever 
one generation away from going extinct. In other words, if you choose not to grow younger as a church, you are choosing to go extinct as a church. And I don't want Osterville Baptist Church to go extinct. I think God's done something really special in this place for over 188 years. And I think that the New Testament gives us so many cues that that's not how you should think as a church. You've always got to be thinking about the next generation. In fact, I want you to open with me a little letter in the Bible, 2 Peter. So open up your Bible, go to 2 Peter, and as you're turning there, let me just give you a quick synopsis of this letter. Uh, Peter is awaiting his execution in prison. Uh, we are somewhere between AD 64 and 68. We don't know exactly the time, but we've got it pinned down to this. It's a generation after the death of Christ, and Christianity has made its way all the way from Israel to the very center of the Roman Empire in Rome. Nero is the emperor at this time. He's a bad dude. He intentionally set Rome on fire uh, for a building expansion. By the way, we will not be doing that here. And what he does politically is he knows that this Christian sect is kind of viewed as obscure and held in contempt by the general populace. So he blames it on them. A great persecution breaks out. One author describes the horror of it. He says, in their very deaths, they were made the subject of sports. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs. They were nailed to crosses. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Now, Peter knows the death that awaits him. In John's gospel, when Peter was being restored after denying Jesus, Jesus said to Peter, your arms are going to be stretched out. In other words, you're going to be crucified. Now, tradition tells us that Peter, because he had denied Jesus, didn't believe it would be appropriate for him to die in the same manner as his Lord. So he asked to be crucified on an inverted cross. But just think about this for a minute. Can you imagine living for the next 30 years knowing the exact way you're going to die? How would you live in light of that? Would that cause you to just kind of give up? Well, not Peter. Peter chose to live even knowing how he was going to die. And what he chose to do was he chose to pour into the next generation. We see this in his words if you're in 2 Peter, we're looking at verses 12 to 15. Peter is talking to the next generation. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, how do they know them? How have they been established in them? Well, it's because Peter's been pouring into them, right? Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. 
and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter had been given a mandate by Jesus. You remember after he denied Jesus, he's on the shoreline with Jesus, and Jesus is restoring him. And Jesus asks him the same question three times. Peter, do you love me? Let me ask you, do you love Jesus? If your answer to that question is yes, Jesus' mandate for you is feed my sheep. In other words, you care about the next generation. Think about Peter's life. Do you think that Peter lived one day of his life after that interaction with Jesus and didn't think about it? He thought about it all the time. It's in his heart and in his mind even now as he's writing his last letter while in prison. The next generation. How am I going to raise them up? It keeps him focused. He keeps doing the right things. I think we see in this letter two things that Peter did that we need to do too in order to raise up the next generation. The first thing is pretty simple. It's proclaim Jesus. Proclaim him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In other words, Jesus is everything. Do you believe that the younger generation is walking away from Jesus because there is something wrong with Jesus? I don't believe that. I believe if they saw the real Jesus and understood the real Jesus, that they would be mesmerized by the real Jesus. In fact, as I hear the younger generation talk about what they don't like about church and Christianity, it is often the things that Jesus himself rejected, like hypocrisy, judgmentalism, seeing a need that is visibly in front of you and walking past it and doing nothing about it. Um, You know, these are the kind of things that the younger generation rejects, but what if, what if we exposed them to the real Jesus? And this is, of course, what Peter did. If you look at verse 16, Peter's like, listen, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's all Peter did with his ministry. I walked with Jesus. I talked with him. I heard what was on his heart. I saw his lifestyle. I lived in that lifestyle. It radically changed me. You know, they suspect that the Gospel of Mark is actually the eyewitness account of Peter's experience. Uh, When you look at the first Christians, the early church, they were just engrossed in the life of Jesus. (laughs) We don't have just one Gospel, after all. We have four gospels. They wrote these four gospels for us because they were like, listen, we have different perspectives and there's unique dimensions to this life of Jesus. You need to be captured by this life of Jesus. 
And so they hand it to us as a gift. Peter, look at that verse, says you don't need to wow the next generation. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't try to entertain them. We didn't have to put fog machines in the front of the church and have strobe lights and take them off on these fun activities in order to capture them. Let me just say this. If you have to wow people into something, it means that what you are telling them really isn't that worthwhile. Uh, That's why we have shorts on social media. That's why we have Hollywood filmmaking. When you have something that is worthwhile, when you have the most captivating story in human history, you know what you do? You just tell it. And you keep telling it. I love how Paul tells the story of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Friends, this is like the most captivating story in human history. The God of the universe? God came to us embodied? He lived in our neighborhood. He entered into the mess and the brokenness of our world. You don't need your iPhone. You don't need the Samsung Galaxy to give you the next dopamine hit. You need to live in the abundant life that this story is describing to us and is telling us that is available to us. This Jesus who lived amongst us, he faced the cruel penalty of the Roman cross. Why? So that we wouldn't have to face the fate of being eternally separated from God in hell. Friends, If that story doesn't captivate your heart, it's not going to captivate the next generation's heart. And this story is so much bigger than just a get out of hell free card. I think sometimes with the younger generation, we think, let's just send them off somewhere, let them hear the gospel, let them just cross the line of faith, and then everything will be okay from there. No, this life is a call to so much more. It's a call to abundant life. It's a call to find your joy and everything that you want that really matters in this world in the person of Jesus. It's a call to discipleship. Think about Peter. Peter at one point was the next generation, wasn't he? You look at Luke chapter 5, Peter's a young man, He is ensconced in this career of fishing, and he's spent an entire evening out fishing, laboring, chasing after the the local spots that he knows are great. Nothing. Doesn't catch a single fish. So now he sees Jesus, the rabbi, walking along the shore, and Jesus kind of calls out to them, and he says, hey, why don't you go out into the deep and cast your nets? and then you'll catch some fish. Now, 
I can hear the gears spinning in Peter's head because I like fishing too. And I know this about it, right? You don't go out into the deep with cast nets to catch fish. You go at night in the shallow water and you catch the fish there. Peter has ju- Jesus has just told Peter to do the wrong thing. And not only does he tell him to do the wrong thing, but Peter knows how fishing works. You go out for a couple of hours and you don't catch anything. What do you do, Earl? You move on. We have a saying about this. We say, that's fishing. It happens. So Peter is about to push back on Jesus, but then he's like, eh, this guy said some really powerful stuff. He's done some really powerful things. I'll give it a try. He goes out to the deep. He casts the nets. And what happens? Pulls in such a load of fish that it's breaking the nets, that they need to call another boat to come alongside and help him. Peter sees the presence of God in this. He knows fishing. This doesn't happen. So what does he do? He falls on his knees right in front of Jesus, and he says, depart from me, for I am sinful. Let me just say this. When you come into the presence of the real Jesus, this is the response. You're looking at him and seeing him for all of his goodness. You're looking at yourself and you're looking inward and you're like, you know what? I'm not like that. I'm looking at what I could be and should be in him and I'm not that. Uh, My kids and I We've been making our way through the Chosen series. Quick show of hands, who've watched the Chosen? Okay, good. Great series, highly recommend it. Um, we are in season two right now, and we've been kind of watching this group of disciples emerging, and they're starting to take on the ministry. And, and my kids and I were driving in the car talking about these disciples. And I said, hey, what do you guys think about these guys? You think they're pretty good guys? What do you think about them? And their immediate reaction is like, they're awful. I don't like these guys. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, they're really not that bad of a group of guys. I mean, they could pass for one of us for crying out loud. Why do they feel that way? Well, they're standing right next to Jesus. You know, when I stand next to my neighbor, when I stand next to one of my family members, when I stand next to a friend, when I stand next to one of you, I can come off feeling pretty squeaky clean. Go stand next to Jesus. How do you feel now? There's this scene that gave me goosebumps. Jesus is in his Galilean ministry, and there is a line, like a horde of people coming to see him in a tent, and he's healing people of their ailments. He's casting out demons. He's bringing this salvation that the Bible has promised both now and into eternity. He's bringing the kingdom of God. The disciples have been trying to manage all of this. They're getting tired. They're grumpy. They're sitting around the fire. It's past dinner time. It's dark. And they're starting to talk amongst themselves. And Peter goes off on Matthew. 
Now, Matthew, if you remember, he's the tax collector. He's the traitor to his own people. Peter looks him in the eye, and he's like, you don't belong in this group. How could you do what you did? You're a terrible person. I'm never going to forget what you did to your own people. Meanwhile, someone around the fire is like, well, Peter, you're no saint yourself. Remember what you did? He justifies himself. An argument erupts. And in the middle of their pettiness, you see the humanity of Jesus, the exhaustion of Jesus. He comes stumbling back into the camp, literally healing people from sun up until sun down. He can barely get the words out. He just says, good night. He stumbles over to the tent. His mother Mary has to come over and take off his cloak and help him get off of his sandals. The disciples are silent. They don't say anything because they know what they've just been doing and they know what he's been doing. And I'm watching this scene and I'm feeling just like them. I'm around the fire too. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not like him, at least not in the ways that I could be or should be. I need to be more like him. You know, when Peter was called to be a disciple of Jesus, he understood the framework that he was engaging in. Uh, the Hebrew word for disciple is Talmudim. And a Talmudim is organizing their life around three basic goals. They're following a rabbi. Jesus is the rabbi. The first basic goal is to be with Jesus. The second goal is to become like Jesus. The third is to do what he would do if he were you. I like what author John Mark Colmer says around this concept. He says, the whole point is to model all of your life after Jesus, and in doing so, to recover your soul, to have the warped part of you, you put back into shape, to experience healing in the deepest parts of your being, to experience what Jesus called life to the full. So what is discipleship? Well, in the context of Jesus, it's a call to a better way of life. Think about how you're living life right now. If you're all like wrapped up in anxiety, if you're feeling exhausted because you don't have margin in your life, if you're looking inwardly and saying, I just perpetually feel like I'm not good enough, if you're sick and tired of running the rat race just to get a little bit more so you feel a little more satisfied, do you not know that God has more than that for you? Jesus offered it. It was his call in Matthew chapter 11. I want to read it to you in the message paraphrase. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love 
how Dallas Willard describes this invitation. He calls it the secret of the easy yoke. You know, the yoke that Jesus is describing here is a way of life. The Pharisees had a very heavy yoke. You need to be legalistic. You need to keep 600 and some odd commands. You need to do, 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 do. Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you a better way. Willard says this, the secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. And let me just say, if the pharisaical system was a heavy yoke, our system is heavy too. Workaholics are anxious, they're depressed. We were never made to live at a pace of 24-7, 365. We were made to live at God's pace. Look at Jesus. Jesus is never in a hurry, ever. Jesus is never anxious. Jesus is never depressed. Jesus is never overcome by feelings of inadequacy. He never experiences this insatiable desire for more. He doesn't have deep relational regrets. Listen to me, church. That is the abundant life that the Bible's talking about. That's the life that I want. That's the life that we should want. What if we modeled that life to the next generation? Perhaps they're not rejecting Jesus and the message of Jesus. They're rejecting the lifestyle that frets and fears and strives and reprimands others. What if we just looked more like Jesus for them? You know, Peter gets into this. 2 Peter 5 through 8. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Then he says this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And every time in scripture you see a list like this of virtues, it's describing to us the way of Jesus, his character, how he approached life. We can hand this to the next generation. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, you know, Rob, you're, you're telling us about how to reach the next generation, and I was hoping for some proactive tips on how to do that well, but you're just kind of telling us the basics of Christianity right now. Well, let me just say this. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, this is a really good playbook. This playbook has been working for two millennia, okay? Here's how you break Christianity. You break it when you try to fix it outside of this playbook. So what do we do? Well, I think there is something proactive we can do with this next generation. We run these plays, and we include them in the process, 
See, the way you grow younger as a community is you involve and include the next generation. Jesus did this. If you looked at his disciples, some of his disciples would have been teenagers in today's standards. He invites them into the flow of his mission. He says, I'm going, you come along with me. So if a church wishes to grow younger, I believe a church needs to make six core commitments. And I want to walk through these quickly with you. The first core commitment that we need to make is called key chain leadership. What is that? Well, it's actually the simplest thing that we can do as a church in order to head in this direction. This is including the next generation with the responsibility of the church. It's letting them lead to. Um, I was 15 years old when I preached my first sermon, okay? Someone came up to me and they said, we would like to give you the opportunity to preach at our Sunday evening service. And get this, I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of scared. And people came out to that service, listened to my message, and encouraged me after I preached it. It was awful. Terrible sermon. Now, I've been doing it a little more since then, so it's a little less awful today. But I'll tell you, I don't believe I would be doing what I'm doing today if I wasn't included back then. Now, not every young person is going to have a call to preach, though I think some of you should. We need preachers. You could do it. God could use you in significant ways. I would love to see him do that for you. I believe it's a great profession. But we need to incorporate them in all that is meaningful in the body of the church. Empathy today, when I think of empathy, the way I define it is I intentionally take the time to understand you. Okay? Is that so hard? Just means I shut up, stop talking, ask questions. I believe that the older generation needs to take the time to understand the younger generation and vice versa. But I believe it's the older generation's responsibility to take the first steps. And then it will be reciprocated. In other words, if you've been carrying the gospel baton, it's your job to take those first steps, to not make church all about what you want and what you need and what you get out of it, but to practice what Paul said in Philippians 2, consider others better than yourself. And when the church chooses to do that, the church becomes a safe space for young people. Jesus' message isn't that what we're talking about today? The gospel, the authentic life of Jesus, deep theology. Young people need space to interact with this message, not to just be told this message at them. They need a space where they can ask the legitimate questions that they have of scripture and theology. And how do I do this in my day and age? Warm relationships. Osterville Baptist gets an A plus here. You guys are a great church. Uh, when I was applying to this church 
for the senior pastor position. I said, this place is a dream place. And it's a dream place because the people here genuinely care about one another. Now, isn't that a novel thing? The church should be a place where you feel known and loved and where you belong and where you matter. I know young people that spent three or four years here in my time in the ministry, and they long to be back here because they were wrapped up in the arms of the church. They miss that. So let's keep doing it. Prioritize everywhere. What does that mean? Well, you're not just involving them in the leadership, but you're bringing them around the table of ideas. As you're making decisions for the church as a leadership team, you're asking the question, how will this decision that we're making right now affect the young people? Is this going to make them feel more included or less included in the church? Now, again, this will take us practicing Philippians chapter 2 because sometimes when we're making the decisions around the church, we're like, what's in it for me? Paul said, consider others better than yourself. And this is not to the exclusion of the older generation. Because like loving Jesus, I believe that when you include the younger generation, it's the rising tide that lifts all boats. When the church has young people, the church feels more alive. And that, of course, migrates into all of the other ministries. The last one, best neighbors. Love thrives in specificity. That's our story to our community. That's loving people in tangible ways where the younger generation can look out and say, you know what, they really mean this love thing. Like they're doing it in our context and I see it happening. Listen here, church. This is why I'm saying this initiative, this our story is so important our story to our community, and our story to our family, if we do those things well, we're going to tell our story to our future. They're going to want to be involved in all of that. So as we approach next week, remember as you're looking at that commitment card, something very important when it comes to giving. When I give, I always tell myself this, I'm giving to Jesus. That's where my gifts go. I've never written a single check to Osterville Baptist Church. That was just in the pay-to-order line of the check so that you know, whoever's processing it understands that the church is responsible for those finances. But every check is always to Jesus. It's about him. It's about what he's done in my life. Is you're praying about giving a gift. That's who you need to be talking to. I want to challenge you as you're praying this week, as you're preparing, think about Jesus and what he's done in your life in like the last six months. Doesn't that make you feel loved? He's really blessed me. He's blessed my family. He's been so instrumental in our lives and I want more of that. And I want to give so much more to him in response to that. So as we prepare for communion, I just want to pray over us and ask for his blessing, and then we'll lead into communion. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this next generation. 
I personally, as a pastor of this church, as I look at the young people in this church and then the young people outside of this church, I feel hopeful. They're incredible, beautiful people, people made in your image, people that you know and you love. And they have so much to offer and so much value to bring into the church. We want to be a place where these young people feel known, feel valued, and understand that, hey, you're one of us. You're in this with us. Let's go for Jesus. So as we tell our story to our community and to our family, let that story resonate in the hearts of our young people too. Because we need them and we love them. And we want your best for them. We pray this in Jesus' name.